0: Welcome to Terminal Talk, a podcast on mainframe and mainframe-related topics. I'm Frank. I'm Jeff. And with us today, we have two experts on Unix System Services on ZOS, John Humboldt and Dan Aceveda. Yes. I said it right? Yes, you you did. Good job. Good work. (laughs) All right. So uh, let's start really, really simply. What the heck is Unix System Services and why do I care? (laughs)
1: You can go, Joe. Jan.
2: Okay. <laughs> uh, Unix System Services is basically Unix
3: on MVS or ZOS. We, but isn't that a different operating system, though? How does that work? Why, why would I want that?
2: <laughs> That's what the magic is.
3: Oh, okay. I didn't know there was magic involved. So yeah. Go on. I'm already intrigued.
2: Um, well, let me start from a historical uh, perspective. Um, in 1990, the federal government came up with a, a standard, FIPS 151, that said any future operating system and hardware had to be POSIX-compliant. So IBM quickly scrambled to understand the POSIX standard and figured out how we could put it on the ZOS or, at that time, MVS platform. So um, in 1991, we actually started work in earnest on doing that work. And we um, basically, by putting another layer on top of MVS, implemented all of the POSIX standards.
0: So it's a layer on top. It's it's not like, oh, we have a whole separate set of commands and they run through a separate piece of code. It's it's actually a new and different interface to existing capabilities, right? A whole, whole
2: new set of APIs, um, but we are tightly coupled with the ZOS BCP. So we um, use RACF for our security decisions. Um, we use data sets for traditional HFSs. Um, <laughs> I'm lost. <laughs> where, where is I going with this? <laughs> yeah, but
0: so so the, the the point though is that that when you're running this stuff, it's still the same. There is no MVS side and Unix side in in ZOS, right? It's all um, it's a set of APIs into an existing environment, right? Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Well said. <laughs> yeah, I spent a lot of time in my youth uh, trying to correct people on this.
1: <laughs> ah.
3: But if i if I make a file, if you know because the, the, the traditional UNIX commands are available to me, a lot of them are anyway in USS. If I like make a file or make a directory or something like that, it doesn't show up exactly the same way in MVS. It's kind of like an upside down world kind of thing, though it's it's <laughs> like you know because a file, we, we you know data set people say, oh, it's just a file, but it, it it really isn't. Like how do the two sides talk to each other? Is it through those common APIs again? It
2: is through those common APIs, and I'll probably let Daniel handle this one because it's yep. actually the LFS, which is the logical file system, right. that implements the um, directory structure within a data space or data set, excuse me.
1: Yeah, we we handle the, the interface to the actual file system. So ZFS and HFS, you can think of them, they're basically a data set that's formatted in a specific way. So HFS has their formatting. ZFS is a vSAM data set that's formatted however they do things. And we we tell ZFS, you oh, know, we're creating a file. Put it in there somewhere. And they're responsible for saving that data, putting it in there, and retrieving it when we tell them to give it back to us and give it to the user. So that's, you know, top-down kind of how the flow works, I guess. You can okay. <laughs>
0: So originally, you know, John, you talked about how this was really focused primarily on the government and we had to do this stuff for making the government happy. Um, But it's gone way beyond that since now, right? It
2: it has. Um, I think once we implemented what we had to do to conform to the government contracts, um, suddenly um, we realized that, wow, we can run all kinds of open software on, on our platform. And so, um, you know, we pursued some of the Unix standards. I mean, right now, I think we're a bit behind. Um, I think our latest um, branding is the Unix 95 um, standard. But um, we we always run into issues where um, we are not compatible with some Linuxes. And people (laughs) who write applications on Linux say, well, it's just another flavor of Unix, so we want to bring it over to your platform. And unfortunately, we're not 100%. But um, with some gentle massaging, they can be made to work.
0: Yeah, a lot of times, though, don't you have issues – when I've worked with, with businesses who have tried this, they they invariably bring over a piece of code that, well, maybe wasn't written so well in their own environment. But you wouldn't notice that because uh, as soon as things start to get mucked up, they say, well, it's no big deal. Just buy another piece of hardware and kind of put it down next to them, right? When I've worked with a lot of those companies and they come back and say, well, we, we put this piece of software on – on ZOS and it didn't work so well, they end up realizing that it really didn't work all that well in the old place either and they have to start kind of re-architecting. Have you guys seen a lot of that kind of work, this, hey, you want to do this stuff on ZOS, you really should think about re-architecting this or? Um,
2: Yeah, there are. I mean some applications are very uh, process intensive where they fork or spawn and create a a great number of processes. Um, Most of the time in ZOS, a process is equivalent to a um, ZOS address space, and that's a finite number of address spaces that can be created. So we created some things to help get them around that hump, which is basically allow multiple processes in an address space. But that's a special set of our services
0: that allow that to be done, and they have to tweak to take advantage of that. But but this is kind of really an important thought, right? Is that I'm I'm running from a from an operational perspective, from the from the applications perspective. He thinks he's running in, in a completely different um, environment, when in fact he's running in a task, right? In in the current one, right? And so the ability to take advantage of. You know the performance associated with the dispatching of a task, as opposed to creating a new address space every time, is kind of important, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, much
2: later cost. I mean, um, if you want to use the process model, we have a thing called uh, attach exec, which you basically can attach a, pro- a new process running a new. We call it a process image, a new program, where we have a spawn where you can basically um, same semantics as a, a spawn in any Unix platform, where normally that would create a new address space. We have a local spawn which it just creates another task in the same address space. So, yeah, you save all that overhead of creating a new address space. And um, in the case of like Fork, for instance, where you actually have to copy all the storage from the parent's address space to the child's address space. And that's tremendously expensive.
0: Right, especially considering that we – treat our memory with a little bit more uh, security rigor than a traditional Unix environment does, right? Sure. Sure. So I think it's really kind of valuable that that we can do things the way Unix does them, but really start to provide a capability that you can't get anywhere else, right? This ability to do it uh, more quickly, with, with more security, with the ability to kind of drive a, a new way of looking at uh, traditional... Unix processes. Yeah, I mean, as I said before, I mean, of course, not only RECF but any security
2: product. Um, we we have all security decisions made by the security product. So now you have whatever power you have of your security product to to manage processes, um, client identities, um, what, what what have you. Right.
3: So if if I have a, a process that I need to run, that's it's written in the on the Unix style, it's out there in USS. Do I have to drop into the USS side of things to run it every time or can I like write up a job card and look at the output like through a regular, you know, uh, SDSF log?
2: Um, I think you can. Uh, again, Dan and I are the primitives. We're, we're okay. kernel <laughs> and, and LFS. OK. So mm. um, I'll, I'll try to answer the best I can. Um, we have um, if you traditional batch kind of job. We right. have a utility, um, BPX batch. That will submit um, your job from JCL and um, just by virtue of using our services, you become attached to USS. So if you have an application that is perhaps traditional ZOS and you make first use of a Unix system service. You do a thing called dub. You are now dubbed as a, a Unix user.
3: And for those listening at home, Daniel is doing a, uh, a
2: I anoint you type of uh, hand
1: <laughs> movement. Yes.
2: We actually have a person in our squad who's a um, medieval reenactor. So he's the, the, because the, the of king Because of do.
0: <laughs> Everyone does, don't they? Right. <laughs> well, so this is important. Well, that's I, how I got hired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we won't go there. The, um, you guys have talked a little bit about the fact that you, you're really focused more on the primitives, on kind of the, the guts of it. Can you talk a little bit about um, the stuff that you're working on now and, and where you see that as, a, as the new value to, to the operating system? Um, if you don't mind, Dan, um, I think right now what we're focused on
2: is we're really focused on constraint relief. Um, our kernel address space is you know, a traditional 2-gig address space and we ran into a, a number of problems where when we had a concurrent, large number of concurrent threads in the kernel, our stack size was over 40K. So it didn't support that many threads. Um, a recent thing we've done a couple of releases ago was we moved our stacks above the bar. So now we went from approximately 25,000 threads in the kernel to
0: a theoretical limit of uh, half a million. So this is kind of important, right? Is that you guys are still taking the those uh, base capabilities and increasing and driving new and different um, capabilities into that into that environment? It's not, hey, we had this thing uh, based on something we had to do for the government back in the '90s, and and we've kind of we've kind of done that, and everybody's happy, and we walk away, right? You guys are focused on on making that move forward.
1: Yeah, sure. well, there's a lot of, like, newer technologies. Like, now you have Python, Java, which a lot of people tend to not think of mainframe, <laughs> but you you can run all those things now.
0: So are you
1: guys doing a lot to make that happen? Uh, specifically, I don't know that we, we may need a little support here and there, but I, I don't know, John, do you remember anything specific recently?
2: Well, the recent thing that we're, we're actually working on right now is um, MemMap uh, 64-bit just because uh, we have applications that we want to run on our platform like Spark. And uh, to only map a file that's uh, you know, less than uh, – let's say quite a bit less than 2 gig is fairly limited to run analytics on. So right. now when we exploit uh, above-the-bar 64-bit storage, um, the size of the file that can be mapped is going to be you know, tremendous.
0: Well, and that's going to be huge, right? Because everybody uses Python um in in that data analytics space, right? So being able to to manage it across uh, um across the kinds of memory that that we're supporting is is a key value.
3: So when when I SSH into a Z system, is that is that the USS space I'm seeing?
1: Yes and no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Can you fill me in on either both sides of this? That's, well, that's what we get for asking a yes or no
3: question. Yeah. You,
1: you're definitely in our environment, right? Right. But we don't control so much what the shell is doing because okay. that's another team altogether.
3: Okay. So
1: <laughs> and you know underneath you're using Unix system services. So right. That's nice you're you're, that. you're looking at your files and doing io or whatever creating processes depending on what you're working on so yes you're using our stuff but
3: because you know. i asked because um it was, uh, when we, we were talking about Isoda, it was one of the first episodes um it was jesse she was saying that she had actually never logged into uh ispf or anything like that she did all right. of her work because it was primarily python based through SSHing in and, and using a shell so, you know, it kind of goes into what you were talking about, like uh, for the data science stuff is primarily using Python and interacting directly with the kernel. So um, is – but when I, when I log in, is it a um, – an sysplex type environment? Is it a Plex-wide thing or is it a, a per, per instance, per system type thing?
2: Yes yes, and no. Uh, <laughs> man.
3: <laughs> i got two strikes over here. Uh, You're not winning.
2: As far as the actual kernel is, um, we are not sysplex cognizant. So you have one kernel per system in a Plex.
3: Okay.
1: Unlike file system. <laughs> so for file system, we can share a file system across the SysPlex. Right. So if you're using, um, if you're in the root, the root can be mounted across the SysPlex, many, many systems. But you, you to, to the end user, that's transparent. Okay. And depending on how you have it set up, you're accessing directly or you're actually sending a message to the other system and say, hey, I need this file and send it back to me, etc., etc.
3: And that can work without people stepping on each other?
1: Yep. That was my next question.
3: For for, everything I've asked I was expecting that would be the yes or no. no no. (laughs) You should be able to.
1: You better be able to.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's why you're still here.
0: (laughs) I just want to make sure I understand because this is not an area that I'm real, real familiar with. If, if Jeff and I were writing to the root at the same time and we're writing to um, the same or want to write to the same file, is there a, the ability to lock out, um, Jeff, because I was
1: there first? Or Well, only one of you will technically be first. Uh, the thing with Unix, though, is there's no real like file serialization in terms of, you can both be writing to the same file at the same time, and just whichever one writes first is one that happens. You can't really lock each other out unless you do. We have like byte range locks and stuff where you can kind of control that. But um, in terms of the two years is coming in, just one will be first and the other one will be second. That's okay, kind of that, all it comes down to.
0: But that's kind of important, right? Is that that it's still a Unix operating? Uh, it's still a Unix file system. Mm-hmm. So I'm still treating it the way I would treat any other journaled file system.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it wouldn't be like, uh, like if you're opening up a dataset and I'm editing this dataset member, then you're basically the other guy's locked out until you're done. So that doesn't necessarily happen because it's Unix. Right. So we're following the Unix rules.
0: And so, how do I? Are, are you saying that I should never use the Unix files, that you should put everything in data sets because that's all going to be managed or? No.
3: <laughs> <laughs> of course Don't say not. that, Dan. No. <laughs> that would be a terrible thing to say. I, I heard Dan say it. <laughs> um, no, no.
1: no it's, uh, it's it's all a matter of what I guess you need done and how you want to do it. So, you know, a good example is like log files. Ah. You're You're just – constantly writing you don't want to have to wait until the next guy so that you get all this contention and whatnot cool that makes sense
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: we're, we're hitting the boundaries of my experience <laughs> I mean. there,
0: there's there's a lot of ibm generated capabilities now that that rely on unix system services right Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, our comm server TCPIP implementation
2: uses our services, uh, kicks DB2, um, was
0: um, tons of middleware. Yeah, it seems like uh, everybody's used it um, lately because it's a great shortcut. I don't have to learn quite as much mm. about the operating system in order to use it right. right. The, the neat thing about this, right, is that I have a set of APIs that if I tried to do that all in – in ZOS itself, it's it's literally harder to do. I have to know more. And a lot of the, the defaults are kind of figured out for you um, by using the primitives that you guys create, right? I remember uh, working with a, a customer back in the 90s, and uh, when we started to show them what they could do with Unix system services instead of trying to create all the – you know all the mvs infrastructure in order to do this stuff they they really started to understand what they could do and they got excited about it i remember going back to them 6 months later and they're they're trying to force fit stuff down using unix system services and i said guys there's a really easy zos facility. You could just call that instead. But they'd gotten so tied around, oh, this Unix stuff is so cool. I'm going to mm-hmm. use that all the time. And it's really weird to see people think of it as one or the other. But you guys don't really see it as one or the other, right? Uh, we do not. We, um, we expect them to interoperate freely. I mean, you
2: can easily go from calling a Unix service to calling a ZOS service. and And in fact, a lot of the application developers I've worked with it's exactly what they do. They take advantage of the traditional ZOS services and, and then use our services
0: uh, in between or around. Right, because it makes it a lot easier if you take the advantage of, of what's best on both sides, right? hmm So um, when, when, when you guys were, uh, were growing up, did you say, I, I want to do Unix system services? Is that, is that how you got here? It almost feels that way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a dream come true then. <laughs> Living the dream. There you
2: go. <laughs> um, I, I actually a uh, little history. Uh, I'm a Hudson Valley person. I grew up in Kingston. Um, went to school in Kingston. Went to school at Marist uh, on IBM's dime, which was fantastic <laughs> at the time. Wow. Yeah. Um, uh, I worked in Fishkill um, actually building test equipment for the early 3080 program. Uh, went to Kingston and worked on the system test floor, debugging mainframes for customers before they went out. And while I was there, I was writing a lot of tools and a lot of software, kind of had a good time with it, and uh, found an opportunity to go through a another retrain program through IBM and uh, got into, um, at the time it was called DPPX, which was in Kingston. And DPPX was being sunsetted, and we were looking for a project, and suddenly we heard about this this cool POSIX thing, except it was on MVS, and we have no MVS experience. So um, the Myers Corner Lab here in Poughkeepsie sent uh, a half dozen or so experts up to Kingston to teach us all about MVS and ZOS. And um, the rest is history. I've been, <laughs> I've been on this platform uh, working on USS for uh, just over 28 years now.
3: So you had UNIX experience first, and then you had to learn MVS? I
2: had no Unix experience. Oh, you had none? No no MVS experience whatsoever.
3: (laughs) Okay. So you just kind of had to learn
2: everything. Had to learn everything. We had one really uh, favorite talk everyone had. Uh, Dan House came down from IBM Canada and, and was talking a little bit about POSIX and Unix and you know, we said, "Oh yeah, you have demons and you have zombies and they're forking around." And you know, we we all laughed and we got a great chuckle out of that. But, yeah, uh, how
3: can you not be interested in that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, we
0: were hooked. I mean, we. So, what about you, Dan? What, what, how did how did
1: you how did you end up here? Um, I've pretty much been with USS for most of my IBM career. I started with USS. I kind of went off on little side projects for maybe like two years i think it was it was probably a little less than that and then uh, i was called back because of a a retirement that came through and they need help and i was like sure i'll come back and and help out so here i am again and still going (laughs) so now i'm on the uh well i'm back on the file system side but i guess now uh i get to be the, the the product owner for lfs
2: Dan so, <laughs> Dan's being a little shy, but he's one of the few people that has experience both working in the kernel and the LFS. So he's a, uh, a very valuable resource for USS.
1: Yeah, I, I dabbled in the kernel for a year, a year and a half, maybe two. Yeah, yeah. So um,
0: when you went through school though, you, were, you school was for you a Unix?
1: Learning, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Unix. I guess maybe that made it more appealing at the time. I was at least familiar with Linux. Um, So it's like, oh, you know, mainframe and Unix, that sounds kind of cool. So perfect match. It's something that I'm already used to. So it's not like I'm jumping into something I've never heard of before.
0: How hard was it for you to start learning about ZOS with with
1: all that Unix background? Um, At least for me, I don't think it was really that difficult because, like you mentioned earlier, once I got into data sets, I was, oh, it's just another type of file type of thing. It's just a little different and and then you you have your you know the shell and unix, and I could still go in there i i I write like for test cases, I can write a shell script versus a c program rather than necessarily um our language so you know it it's nice to have options
3: and we were we were talking a little bit before we uh, we hit record here, you know we're not going to get into any specifics, but um, at some point in the future, potentially, does that work? Alright. Uh, w- there will be some you know, new features or something like that. You know? So this is not uh, a, a maintenance, keep it work type thing. There are new things being brought in all the time.
2: Yeah, as I mentioned a little bit before, um, exploiting 64-bit memory, just just constraint relief is the, right. the big thing, and, and my wish list for for going forward here. I mean, moving more of our control blocks... Above the bar, to allow uh, our services to scale to whatever you know demand our, our customers and applications need.
0: Okay, so let's do a let's do a, a little thought experiment experiment here, right? So um, you come in tomorrow morning, and 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 there in your office is Jenny, and she says, "Hey, I'm going to give you a, a, a unlimited bucket of money to do what you want to do." on, on uh, USS, so what would you want to do? Probably my number one thing would be um,
2: to bring our standard compliance more up to current levels. As I said before, so we have a lot of you know, Linux ports and they come over to our platform and it takes them a bit of work to get it to work on our platform. If we were a little bit more aggressive in our how how current we are with our with our standards i think we'd be much easier
3: platform i know at least one guy from a major retail, retail company <laughs> <laughs> I would agree with that i don't want to mention any names cuz it'd be indiscreet but i know he listens yeah <laughs> eventually i think he's a few weeks behind at this point
0: we'll give him a hard time about that
3: yeah <laughs> we'll hear about this sometime in june <laughs>
1: <laughs> what about you Dan um well i guess the the thing i'm most excited about not necessarily future stuff is just, you know, we have HFS, which is an older file system, and we're hopefully finally getting rid of HFS and moving everybody to ZFS, which is our newer, better performance, just better performing uh, file system.
0: Is that the only difference between the two is that ZFS
1: is faster? I think you get a lot of RAS improvements as well. So, like razzle yeah. dazzle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's short for
3: razzle dazzle.
1: Reliability, availability, scalability.
3: Oh, oh, I thought it was Z.
1: Imagine yeah. that.
0: <laughs> no, but I, th- this is kind of key, right? Is that one? One of the things that I always thought made the ZFS better was the ability to kind of back up in line, um, so that I don't have to kind of play mount tricks in order to back up my data, right? There, there's some really neat things that I can do with the ZFS that were kind of problematic in the old HFS, right?
1: Yeah, and uh, actually there's a new, newer thing coming out for with the DFSMS. I believe they're doing um, backup and restore, so we're adding that kind of functionality which didn't exist before, which is pretty nice.
0: Yeah, I think that's kind of the thing that if people can get their minds around using ZOS is that I can do Unix-y things and start to take advantage of mainframe capabilities and still have all the richness of Unix, but still also get the value of ZOS.
1: Yeah, so like ZFS is also taking advantage of uh, encryption. So you can have a Encrypted ZFS file system.
3: Ah, there you go. <laughs> there's, there's kind of a key reason to do that. <laughs> That's Minor, a big one. Minor. Minor. <laughs> <thing>.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been awesome, right? I really appreciate you guys coming down. Um, thank you very much.
3: Yeah. And uh, if you're listening, make sure you go out and uh, rate and subscribe, leave a comment, do the tweet stuff. Uh, it helps more people find the show and uh, helps us keep doing this.
0: Yeah. Got to keep the lights on. Old man Charlie run us out you've been listening to terminal talk with frank and jeff for questions or comments or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode direct all correspondence to contact at terminaltalk.net that's contact at terminaltalk.net until the next time i'm charlie lawrence signing off